0: Hey, uh, welcome to Collective Young Adults. It is good to be in the house tonight. Can we thank the worship team one more time for leading us tonight so faithfully? So good. Well, this year uh, I've been flying a lot. And recently I was coming back from a trip and I flew through what I believe to be the one place in the whole world where God's presence cannot be, and that is the LAX airport. Okay? I hate this airport. I don't know what they were doing when they built it. It, They just want people to suffer in this airport. Other airports are like, let's make it easy for you to travel to your connecting flight. Let's make it really nice on you. No, LAX says, oh, you have a gate to catch in 10 minutes. How about you take a terminal or a little bus that takes 30 minutes, and then you have to sit next to people with BO on the bus. That's what we're going to do to you. And I was in LAX, and I had just taken a red eye from the night before there's about a three-hour time difference, so I touch down at LAX about 6 a.m., so it's really like 3 a.m. for me, and I just cannot sleep on planes. If that is you, you are anointed. God has something special over your life. That is not the case for me, okay? I cannot sleep on planes, and I touch down at LAX, and I'm just exhausted. I, I fall asleep at the gate. They call the kind of area or whatever. I'm like the last to get on. I get on the flight, And I'm sitting next to you on this little two-seater plane. There's just a uh, row seat and then a window seat, and the plane is packed. Like, everyone's just, like, on the way to Albuquerque from LAX at, like, 6 a.m. on a Monday, I guess. I don't know why, but we all were. And so I'm in the row seat because I hate window seats, and I'm sitting there, and I'm passed out. And I'm, like, having that moment when you're on a flight where it's, like, I think... No one's sitting next to me. Like, the first, like, 20 minutes of sitting down, like, I think I have this. And you start, like, having all these things go through your mind. Like, I'm going to be able to, like, stretch out. I'm going to be able to just have this all to myself. I'm going to have my personal space. In the last five minutes, it's always the last five minutes before the gate closes, this little elderly woman walks down the aisle and then turns to me and says, that's my seat. And I say, oh, good. So I get up, and I let her sit down, and then I just crash out. I am just exhausted. I'm sleeping on the plane. It's an ugly sight. Mouth open. I was probably, like, drooling. It was just, I was, like, snoring. I was done, okay? And I wake up to this woman nudging me, okay? And I, and I want to say that she had been nudging me for about 15 minutes, Okay. And I say that because in my, dream, I had, I had, in my dream, I had somebody hitting my shoulder. And in my dream, I said, stop hitting my shoulder. Maybe it was like the Lucky Charms leprechaun or something. I don't remember my dream. But I just remember this dream. Someone was tapping me, and I was like, no. And I guess to it was like 20 minutes, 15 minutes. And the lady is like, hey, I really have to use the bathroom. This poor elderly woman's bladder, dude. Like, she is just ready to pee herself on this seat. So I get up. And then I let her go, and I had just been ignoring her that entire time that I sit back down, and then I fall back asleep, and she has to nudge me some more to uh, get me to get up out of my seat again. I I honestly should just swap seats with somebody who is more uh, well-rested, but it is what it is. And I share that story because as I was ignoring this very obvious situation next to me, as I was ignoring this elderly woman. I would say that when it comes to reading Old Testament stories in the Bible, we kind of have the same disposition. We know it's there. We know it exists. We know it's kind of pressing. But it's maybe for another time. We tend to ignore, like I did that poor elderly woman on the plane, we tend to ignore the stories of the Old Testament. And because it's so foreign and weird, and because it's hard to somewhat relate to... We, we kind of put it in the back of our minds and we negate it. We say, we'll do another study through Matthew. I'll do another study through, I don't know, you'd rather like do Revelation before you do numbers again, I guess. And when it comes to the Old Testament, we have a hard time conceptualizing because it can be so strange. See, for our teaching text tonight, what Paul is doing is he's using Abraham, this man Abraham's life, as an example. Paul shows we have two choices in our relationship to God. We can attempt to earn our relationship to God, Or we can live in trust to our relationship to God. And this is where I want to go today. I want to go here. I want to talk about how to not live a life led by trust in God. Okay? I might become a Puritan preacher with that long of a title. I think that's the longest title I've ever given for a sermon. Abraham's story, if you're unaware, is as full of blunders and failures as it is faithfulness. About a month ago, we touched on the passage of Scripture where Paul says that we are all benefactors, or we all inherit the faith of Abraham, and because of his faithfulness, we're blessed as followers of Jesus. And Abraham in Scripture is recognized as this, as this prolific, magnificent hero of the, of the faith. And he's revered so highly. Yet, he also did some pretty messed up stuff. I wonder if we can relate. If you don't know the original context of what Paul is talking about, let me read it to you. This is going to be out of Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. And this is how it goes. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, before their names changed, had borne him no children. But she and had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave, but perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms. And now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Okay. Okay. Don't be like me on the plane from LAX right now. You want to. You just want to check out. Don't scroll on TikTok. Don't say, okay, this is going weird. I don't want to read. I don't want to understand this. Tune in with me and stick with me through this because I believe that God has a desire to communicate something very specific to each and every one of us through understanding this story in the lens of Paul. Because... To be honest, this is going to get a little funky to our 21st century ears. So just bear with me. Can you bear with me? Can you do that? Is that okay? Yeah? Are you with me tonight? Okay, cool. See, Abraham's entire relationship to this God by the name of Yahweh had been developing for some time. For Abraham, all that he knew of his relationship to Yahweh, Elohim, was what he was told by him. And to his local community, he was the anomaly. To, to people surrounding him, people did not understand what was going on in Abraham's life. Why are you moving all this way? Why are you talking about how you're going to have kids? You're like 80, 75 years old, bro. And just like somebody like Noah and others who came before these two, he was the outsider in his group of friends, most likely, in his community. Nobody around Abraham followed this Yahweh, this Elohim. He was probably seen as weird. My friend, I don't know where you come from tonight. I don't know what your story is. I don't know what your spiritual journey has looked like up until this point. But I can imagine for each of us at what, whatever phase we are in following Jesus, there's probably some people in your life who weren't too stoked when you came home and said you're following Jesus. Am I right? There's probably some people in your friend circle or some people in your household where this was kind of a point of contention. If that's you, you can relate to Abraham. See, Abraham was asked by God to move his family and that him and his wife will have babies when they're old. And that this is literally a supernatural conception that will take place for Sarah. And what's fascinating is Abraham's significance, his purpose, his reason for his family moving hundreds of miles all rides on this one promise God gives him. And the promise is this, I will make nations of you. I will produce a generation through you. God says there will be so many people that will be able to benefit through this generation. It will be like sand on a seashore, okay? I remember reading that as a kid, and I was like, I don't even know if that many people exist in the world, How, right? It's like, it's allegory, okay? And by this generation, God will redeem humanity from their fallen condition known as sin. And so Abraham trusts God, and he takes the first step. He, has a, he shows initial Faithfulness, but how many of us know initial faithfulness isn't the same as wholehearted faithfulness? He he shows initial faithfulness and he moves and he trusts God in the beginning. But some time passes and Sarah's not pregnant. They both think God's timing's a little too slow. And his wife Sarah then comes up with this grand plan, which is honestly super weird, okay? Like I just gotta be honest, as a 21st century like Bible communicator, this is weird stuff, okay? This is just strange. All right. Um, comes up with this super weird plot. And Paul, in this Galatians passage, now compares what the Galatians are struggling with to this issue in the Old Testament. And he makes an allegory out of the story. And in Jewish teaching, allegory wasn't necessarily conceptualizing something or making up something to have less significance. Allegory was taking something historical, not denying the historical facts, but pulling from a deeper truth from that history. And so when you read Paul's account, it reads a little bit differently from the historical account. It's more so that Paul is trying to draw a deeper truth to this audience. What the Galatians are struggling with, is they're attempting to earn God's favor over learning to live out of a place of trust in God. And by adhering to maybe the Torah, the, the law of the Jewish custom, or maybe by adhering to Greco-Roman society rules, the Galatian church is struggling. They can't understand or conceptualize or, or really come to terms with that Jesus loves them, that he died on a cross for them, and that the work is finished from the cross. They, they're having a hard time. They're wrestling with that. And so this is why Paul says in verse 23, we'll reread it. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. For Paul, Hagar symbolizes a method of belief that relies more on strategies and timelines than the will of God and the voice of God. See, the first lesson in how to not live a life led by trust in God is that you must first surround yourself with people who don't think about others. If you want your trust in God to be weakened in your relationship to him, surround yourself with people who don't think about others. See, the power dynamic is strange to us in this moment, in this Genesis story. If you really think about it, Hagar has zero say or voice in the situation at hand. She is not a factor in this situation. She was not considered by Sarah or Abraham what she thought about this. She was simply subjugated to their own motives and desires. And most likely, Hagar was given as a gift from Pharaoh um, in Genesis 12, when Abraham and Sarah go to visit Pharaoh, and that story, if you remember, Abraham has, like, no game, and so he's like, oh, my wife's actually my sister, and Pharaoh, like, tries to take her as his wife. It's this really strange story that happens again with his son. It's, like, just a family genealogy of zero riz, okay? And so, most like that's where Hagar came from, and Sarah convinces Abraham to sleep with Hagar because she gets impatient. Abraham doesn't lead in the situation as a man or as a spiritual authority in his own household, and he trusts more of his own sexual gratification than the promises God gave him. And what happens is everyone in this story ends up seeking after what they want instead of God's desire, and they don't consider how it affects other people. And in turn, the greatest harm is caused not only in their own lives and their own faith but in the life of their relations to one another. In our efforts to produce the life we desire, apart from God's counsel, our relationships will be the first thing to suffer. When when we seek out a life for ourselves, apart from what God desires for us, the first thing to suffer in your life will be your relationships. Alfred Adler, the psychologist, put it well when he said, It will appear in the end that we have no problems in our lives but social problems. Somebody say amen. And those problems can be solved only if we are interested in others. That's a word. He wasn't even a Christian. That's like preaching to me, okay? Abraham and Sarah, they they received the direct will of God in their lives. And it actually is pretty cool because it aligns with what their personal desires would have been. See, at this time in history, to have children was everything. For women, at the time, it was the purpose of a woman's life within a household. I know, I've said this before, we've come a long way, sisters, okay? But at the time, for a woman, it was significant for them to have a child. If a woman was not able to bear a child, if she was barren, it was shameful in this culture. And more so... For Abraham, it would have been embarrassing that he had nobody to inherit his estate, his wealth. All those goats just got to go to somebody else, I guess. For him, it would have been embarrassing. It would have been something that he wasn't proud of. He even says that he's considering just handing off everything he has to some random servant and entrusting it to him because he has no children. So when God comes into the picture and he presents, hey, I have this plan. I have this will. I have this desire. It probably was a pretty sweet deal for Abraham and Sarah. It was probably something that they were pretty excited about. But often, as is the case today for us in the 21st century as followers of Jesus, Sarah and Abraham began to value the gift above the giver. They began to displace and move the scales in their hearts that what God had to give was more significant than who God is and his word. And despite knowing everything, God still tends to give us as people the benefit of the doubt. Don't ask me why, okay? Like, God just believes in us as people, and he knows what's going to happen, but he's like, hey, go get him, champ. You know, you're going to mess up anyway, but I love you, right? See, God knew Sarah and Abraham would rebel, okay? I, I, I don't fall into the camp of what would be called open theism, that God is unaware of the future. I believe he is fully aware of the future. Um, and what's fascinating about the story is it actually mirrors the garden story in, gen- in the beginning of Genesis, that they missed the beauty of the process and what God was inviting them into in relationship for the gratification of the blessing God had to offer. They simply were focused on their own satisfaction. And Paul compares a faith that relies on a personal work to this story for a reason. See, we can view Sarah and Abraham as people trying to cut in line to get first to God's promises, Okay. The Galatian Church has been deceived to believe that if they follow the Old Testament law, that they will have a quicker access to God's goodness and favor, that somehow by doing more and earning more, that more of God's blessing and favor on their life will just be like sprinkled on, like a little Sunday. In our effort to prove ourselves, we not only suffer, but those around us suffer as well. We tend to use people as rungs in the ladder of achievement often. And in the process, we harm our relationships to help accomplish what we want. And in the long term, we also become unrecognizable to our communities and loved ones. We almost get consumed by ambition for a dream. And it may have started out as a good dream. It may have been a dream or a promise that you believe on a foundational level. It aligned with God's word that God had in mind for you. But in your desire and ambition to tackle and seek after that dream, you kind of forgot about the big picture. This is something we all do, my friends. And we slowly alter who we are, what we value, our moral system, in the name of accomplishment. And Sarah and Abes, I'm going to call him Abe right now because Abraham's a long name, they, they attempted to speed up the process. They, they, they attempted to create what they thought was best for themselves, and they acted in hurry and in haste. Let me tell you something tonight as a little side. Okay, if something is hurried and in haste and has to happen right now, it most likely isn't the will of God. Okay, God works in in good timing. Okay, his timing is perfect. The now, he's not so much concerned with, right? Like, what does it say? A thousand years is like a day. A day is like a thousand years. God's like, wait, you have to wait like a week to get your PTO approved? Just wait a little bit longer. Okay, calm down. All right? That may be preaching to myself right now. Okay? So they try to speed up the process, and Paul uses this Old Testament idea of the flesh, describing a state of decay and inevitable death. If you've ever read in the New Testament or even the Old Testament, this phrase that Paul really likes, specifically in Romans, about the flesh, the flesh, the flesh. Um, It's not some weird thing of, like, dead bodies or something. Paul is referring to the human state, the human condition that we face as people, that on this side of life, the physical is finite, okay? Entropy, right? Things are slowly decaying and along with our bodies, I hate to say it, gravity is going to win in the end, okay? And Paul is using this picture as we battle in, in the flesh and against the spirit and vice versa. And when we come to follow Jesus, we gain the spirit, but what the spirit desires is contrary with what the flesh wants, and we, and we live in this dichotomy as people. See, humanity, apart from relationship to God, is subject to this reality, This is why Jesus says one must be born again of water and of spirit. In Paul's mind, a believer who relies on their own plans and their own abilities is no better than somebody outside the will of God, apart from salvation. Then what Abraham and Sarah do to Hagar is inevitable for how we step on other people to accomplish what we want. See, if you want to not live a life Led by trust in God, surround yourself with people who don't think about others. Paul continues, verse 25. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. Because she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem that is above is free... And she is our mother. Okay, so I'm not sure if you're a big poetry fan, okay? Um, I'm not sure if you grew up reading poetry as a kid. One of, like, the best poets of all time for kids' poetry is Shel Silverstein, okay? Um, like, Where the Sidewalk Ends, amazing, okay? Like, so many others. And I did some research on him for this next portion. And he actually turned out to be, like, a really, like, terrible person. So I'm kind of, like, thinking about that a little more. He's like, just, like, super wild. But um, in researching Shel Silverstein... He actually published this this book that you may have read as a kid, and you may have PTSD now when I talk about it, but it's called The Giving Tree, and it was published in 1964. Okay, that is wild to me. And it's one of the most sobering, depressing, just like nihilistic children's poems I have ever read. Like the fact that my parents let me read that poem as a kid, I'm like, what are you trying to tell me right now? And what's fascinating is when he first tried to get this published, this is from his page. It says, an editor at Simon & Schuster rejected the book's manuscript because he felt that it was too sad for children and too simple for adults. Little did he know, know, we all have trauma that we relate to, okay? And what's fascinating about this poem, if you don't know, is the basic premise of this poem is this, that the book follows the lives of an apple tree and a boy, and the apple tree has life, of course, okay, it's a children's book, who develop a relationship with one another. The tree is very giving, and the boy evolves into a taking teenager, a middle-aged man, and then finally an elderly man. Despite the fact that the boy ages in the story, the tree addresses the boy as boy his entire life. At the end of every line, no matter how much the tree gives, no matter how much it is used and abused by this person, it says this one sobering line, and the tree was happy. And the tree was happy. It's a sobering poem because despite the child just using the tree for what it can take from the tree, the tree is still happy. And I believe that we tend to view our relationship to God in the same way. We tend to view God almost like the giving tree in this story. That despite our selfishness, that God is just apathetic and unmoved and blindly happy with our status of just rebelling against him. And I have to tell you, my friends, God isn't a stump in the ground in a children's poem, but a being capable of emotions, okay? Let's say that one more time. God is not a stump in the ground in a children's poem. He is a being capable of emotions. We consider ourselves, we consider others, but when we act out of our own ambition to accomplish what we want, do we consider God? Think about this. Do we, do we truly consider God? See, if you want to know how to not live a life led by trust in God, believe God's heart to be unbreakable. Believe God's heart to be unbreakable. Yes, God is mighty and he is all-powerful, the, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He's the creator of all things. This is a healthy and true theology of God, but what you must know, and I want to ask you this tonight, did you know that God's heart is a tender heart? Did, did you know scripture says that, that God is slow to anger? That, that God is able to display mercy and kindness towards rebellious humanity Because he has a tender, soft, gentle heart. This is Isaiah 53, verse 3. One of the greatest gems of scripture. And this is talking about the heart of Jesus prophetically. But in the same way, it's describing the heart of God. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. This is like what 90% of the Psalms are about. God, you draw near to the brokenhearted. God, you, you save the Christian spirit. You relate to the Christian spirit because God himself understands the feeling of being let down. God understands the feeling of being betrayed. I don't know if, we, if you've ever thought of God in this, in this idea or way, but God is capable of feeling these things, of experiencing these things. And Paul continues in verse 26, but the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. And in correlation to this story, Paul then quotes a section out of Isaiah 54, which is a beautiful prophecy. And if you're not aware of Isaiah, Isaiah from verses like chapters 1 to 53 has just been pretty intense. Okay? I remember being a young believer, thinking Isaiah was all like prophecy about Jesus. Then you read it, and it's like, your villages are going to be overrun, your children are going to be hung up. And I'm like, oh, this was not what I was anticipating, not like encouraging at all. Okay? But Isaiah is relaying for 53 chapters God's heart. And his brokenness and his trite spirit over the status of humanity that no matter how many times he gives us a try, he is frustrated and saddened by our ability to hurt one another, to betray one another, to lie, to be selfish, to be hurt by others. This is what the book of Isaiah is encapsulating. And the chapter of 54 is this page-turning moment that's easy to miss if you just jump straight into it but is revolutionary in the dark picture that Isaiah has been painting. And this is what verse 1 through 8 says. I'm going to read it in full. This is where it says, Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent Stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back. Lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid, you will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace, you will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandon you, but with deep compassion... Just notice the intensity of this language. With deep compassion, this is a little stump in the ground who's happy, okay? With deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. The picture Paul is painting through quoting Isaiah is what Isaiah is saying is that despite humanity's rebellion, Despite all our chances being seemingly exhausted by God, God is still willing and able to accept people into his family. That despite us running away and turning away and stabbing him in the back and hurting him, God is still willing and able to widen the length of his family. That 2,000 years ago, he could have said, actually, I'm kind of done with you guys. You can kind of figure it out on your own, and I'm out of here. I'm going to go, like, watch sports or something, okay, And like, heaven, But instead, he decides to bring Jesus to the earth, and through Jesus, we have right standing and relationship to God now, and that God's family is able to be bigger and better, and we're able to, as people, be more redeemed than we ever anticipated before. This is why Paul continues, and he follows this quotation in verses 20 to 29. He says, "'Now you, brothers and sisters like Isaac, are children of promise.'" At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. I don't know if you're aware of this, but God has a vision for your life. That that God would not allow you to be formed and created and on this earth if he had no vision for your life. He has a vision for your life. And any parent who has a healthy relationship to their child has a vision for their child's life. And, And this can look sometimes a little unhealthy, and we've seen it, the, the parent who has a child and they're like, okay, and little Timmy, okay, you listening? Okay, stop playing with Play-Doh. Okay, listen, here, eyes. Okay, okay, Timmy, all right. You're going to become a doctor. Okay, 12 years of school, we'll pay for it, whatever, we'll be in debt. And then you're going to buy us an island, like one of the Hawaiian islands would be cool because you're just going to be like super successful. That's what you're going to do for us. Okay, that's my vision for your life, Timmy. Cool. Okay, go back to eating Play-Doh. And then there's other parents, and we've seen this, and it's usually the kid who's the best at sports, where... where Parents tend to live vicariously through their child's life, that the parents have this failure complex that they couldn't do well in their own uh, childhood. And so they see that their kid is gifted in something and they just kind of live passively through it and unrealistically put these expectations on their kids. These are unhealthy ways that people have a vision for their kid's life. For me... I would say I have a somewhat healthy vision for my son Wesley's life, okay? He's currently eight months old. I don't have a photo of him because it would give you all baby fever, and I don't imagine many of you are married, so that would just be causing you to stumble. So I'm just going to describe my relationship to him, to you, okay? So Wesley, I have a vision for his life as his dad. I believe every good parent, every good father, okay, I am not a master or an expert of parenting, but I've gotten this, picked this up so far, okay? I've understood that I have a vision for Wesley's life. If he, if he just does three things, I'm cool. I'm good. And even despite that, I'll still love him, right? He's great. First thing is if he ends up following Jesus, good. Check that off my list. Second thing is if he survives, I'm cool. Good. You lived. Good. We made it. I made it, okay? I, I didn't fail. And three is just don't go to prison. That's it. That's my, that's my three kind of task list for Wesley. Um, if he can do those three things, that's kind of my vision. That's kind of my expectation for his life. And I'm going to work very diligently and hard and do as much as I can, apart from his own personal autonomy because we're separate people, okay? There's a lot of me in him, all right? A little too much, all right? He's a little wild. But we're separate people. I understand he has a will. I have a will. We're, we're separate. But I'm going to respect his autonomy and but do everything I can as a father to intend and desire this vision for his life. Now, I'm flawed, like super flawed. I'm like not a perfect person whatsoever, okay? And if I can craft an okay vision for my son's life and love him even despite him not really walking in that, and if I can love him well enough, how much more can a perfect God who is the father of his spiritual children love us better and craft a more perfect vision for our life? If God is perfect and knows everything and has it all together and he has a vision for you and I's life, how much better is his vision going to be than some parent? And Paul, what he's doing in this moment is he's using two opposites in this allegory. He uses landmarks and people in Jewish culture to draw the comparison. And what you need to understand is he compares Hagar to this mountain called Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is where Moses received the law. And so it symbolizes the old way of life that this Galatian church may have been falling into following. But then what's fascinating, and don't, don't ignore the elderly woman on the plane here real quick with me, Okay. Paul then compares Isaac, the child of promise through Abraham, to a mountain called Mount Moriah, okay? Does anybody want to guess in the story where Abraham almost sacrifices Isaac, what mountain did he almost do it on? Ah, the oh, good. You paid attention the last two seconds. Okay. The rest of you, we'll chat, all right? But that story, you may have heard of it growing up. You may be new to it. Long story short, Abraham is told by God to sacrifice his only son on a mountain, as a pleasing sacrifice to God. Abraham, in his faith, again, he has faith and he has blunders. He says, okay, God, I guess I'll sacrifice my own. It's this wacky, weird story. And he takes him to the top of this mountain, and then God calls it off, and there's a go and all these things. And Paul is comparing those who follow Jesus and walk in the promise of Jesus that we are aligned with the narrative in the past, in the history of this mountain. This mountain will come to be known as Mount Zion. It is where Jerusalem is. It is where the city of David dwells. And some historians suggest that actually where Jesus was crucified on Golgotha might be Mount Moriah. It's contested. And Mount Zion would be the idea Paul is expressing here, as expressed in Revelation chapter 3. I'll read it to you real briefly. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on, the ne- on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I'll also write on them my new name. Okay, this is what you need to understand. As Paul is saying, and the idea of Mount Zion is more of an idea and something that in the concept of Jerusalem, Jerusalem would be this picture of people's perfect unity with God. A place where there's no tears, there's no pain, there's no frustration, there's no sin. But in humanity, we, we mess that up. And so God is saying, I will bring a new Jerusalem. And this is symbolizing the perfect relationship and future we have to look forward to with God. And Paul is reminding us as readers and as believers that what we have in the inheritance we follow and the promise God gives us isn't all lining up just on earth. That Mount Sinai is one fixed location, but Mount Moriah was transitioned to Mount Zion, and that is more of God's heart posture towards humanity. That we as people, we have more to hope for than what this life possesses. This kind of weirds people out. This kind of makes people feel like Christians aren't very invested in this world. But the reality is that us as followers of Jesus, Jesus didn't promise that life would be easy. Us as followers of Jesus, Jesus didn't promise that, hey, once you follow me, life's just gonna be cherry, it's gonna be sweet, sign up for my mailing list, I'm gonna just like deal out buku bucks to all you guys, good luck, you're gonna be kicking it. No, he said, in this life, you will face many troubles. Why? Because this isn't the final destination, my friends. When we begin to make our life and our purpose and the promise God has given us through his son, all about our life right now, with no thinking on the other side of dwelling in perfection with God, What we do is we tend to treat something that's like a layover, like my layover in LAX, and we tend to treat it like it's home. See, what you wouldn't want to do in a situation that I was in earlier in this month is you have a layover for 15 minutes in LAX. you got to make your next gate. You kind of post up. You kind of hang out. You may bring some little candles, some little decoration, film like a little TikTok, like decorating my airport space. Like that's not what you would do. You would say, get me out of this airport. I want to go home. I'm ready to get home. For us as followers of Jesus, I worry that too many followers are making earth a little too too comfortable. I I worry for us as followers of Jesus, we kind of lose sight that this isn't the final destination for us as Christians. That for us, we kind of put all our hope and we put all our promises and we put all our desires in this finite life. And when those fall short, we kind of lose faith in God. We lose trust in him. We believe his promises aren't good. But Paul is communicating that there's more to be seen. There's more to be actualized. And the vision God has for life isn't getting fixated on the short term. See, I, I'm satisfied and pleased with my son Wesley if during his life I have a relationship to him and he loves me and I love him. If that's all I can have with my son, if he ends up being a garbage man, if he ends up being a doctor, that'd be great. right? But like, if he ends up doing whatever... I'm still good with him. I still love him and care for him. I'm concerned that as Christians, we get caught up in all the ideas of, what does God want for my life? And what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to follow this path? Am I supposed to, will God God be angry with me if I don't go to college because my parents told me to go to college? I think God is more concerned with your relationship to him and your connection to him than simply the dichotomy and the trite things that we just wear ourselves with in this world. It's maybe a little bit more simpler than you're making it. We get caught up in these things. But for you, maybe this year so far, it hasn't looked sweet. This year for you, it maybe has not looked like the year you planned for yourself, or even you believe that God had planned for you. Maybe so far from January 2023 to July right now, you feel like life isn't cracking up to what it's meant to be. Summer ain't coming in. It's been six months. It's like not even hot boy summer. It's just like fat boy summer at this point. You're still single, and you're like, dang, like, I thought this would be the case. I thought I had a date to not be single anymore. You didn't get to travel a lot, and you're, like, swiping through all your friends' travel stories. You got no word back from the jobs you applied to. You still feel lonely on the inside late at night, and you try to do things and make things happen to not feel or be this way, but life, life is still lining up to look like this. Those are all real concerns, except the summer bod. Okay, get over yourself a little bit. Okay. God's vision For your life is so much grander, so much bigger than one year of failed expectations. God's vision for your life is so much bigger than that, my friends. Don't get sucked up in the drama right now. This isn't the end goal. This one year isn't the end goal of what you're supposed to become in life. You didn't have those things. Cool. It's not the end yet. You're good. If, If you want to know how to not live a life led by trust in God... It's by believing God's heart is unbreakable, and we break God's heart by stepping aside from the vision that he has for us and stepping into our own ambition, and it hurts him. And so we don't want to settle for less through personal ambition. We, want, we don't want to hurt God. We may be in the place tonight, like, you may desire to really please God. You may be in a place tonight where you want to do right by him. If that is you, I want to present to you, how do we fully live into the vision God has for our lives? How do we fully step into what God presents to us? Paul is brilliant in his application of this idea exactly here. Verse 30, but what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, and for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman, Long story short, what you need to understand is Sarah eventually convinces Abraham to send Hagar and Ishmael, her son, away because she was so embarrassed by the past that they represent of her past disobedience. It's actually really cool. God actually blesses Ishmael and Hagar and actually fulfills a lot of promises through them, and that could be kind of missed in this portion of scripture. But this makes me start to think, it makes me start to understand when Paul is talking about cast out the old life, cast out the flesh from your life. I think of Jesus, and I think of him during the Gospels, and I don't know if you've ever faced this, but when we're reading the Gospels, Jesus tends to be really, really harsh with people. I don't know if you've noticed this, and here's what I mean. When people ask to follow Jesus through the different accounts of the Gospel, Jesus gives each person a different demand. I don't know if you've noticed this, but for the rich young ruler, he only asks the rich young ruler to give away all his possessions and sell them to the poor. Matthew didn't do that, but... Um, Joseph of Arimathea didn't do that. Who was super wealthy. Like, these followers of Jesus didn't do that, but he asked one person to do that. He asked another guy. This guy's like, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you. He's like, good, come on. He's like, no, I have to bury my dad. He just died. I don't know why this story is taking place. Jesus is like, bury, well, the dead will bury their own dead. It's like, what a strange phrase. He asked another guy not to say goodbye to his family. And he says, one who gets in the, has family and gets in the way of following Jesus, doesn't not worth it. That's the Nick translation. Jesus does this with people. He tells them different weird scenarios. Then he ends this portion of scripture by saying this. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. A life of faith is led by the desire to be set apart and distinct for the sake of the kingdom of God. Not to be set apart and distinct for the sake of status, not to be set apart and distinct for the sake of monetary gain, but for the sake of the kingdom of God. You want to ask, why did Jesus expect different things from each of these people? And I believe the answer is that he knew eventually it would get in the way. And so he calls these individuals to say, cast out this stumbling block, this distraction now, because if you can't do it now, you won't be fit to follow me. Sobering reality, those are sobering words. I don't think we think of Jesus in this way, that he has a tall order for his disciples. And Paul's words even seem more aggressive. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. See, how to not live a life led by trust in God is you have to be someone who lives a double life. You have to be someone who lives a double life. See, if you wanna see someone's true self, if you want to learn who someone really is, what you need to do is you need to put them in two situations. The first situation you need to put them into is a situation in front of somebody with influence or power. Then the second thing is you need to put them in front of something that is frustrating. Traffic, like at any point living in the city, um, bad food at a restaurant, I don't know, by the name of like Taco Cabana, like put some hair in their food, see how they respond. Uh, No cellular connection while making a FaceTime call, that is like the most frustrating thing. Put somebody in these situations, and who they really are will come forth. See, my Angelou has this quote. When someone shows you who they are, believe them. And for Jesus and Paul, this is the same disposition. See, one of the factors that made me fall in love with my beautiful wife, Sky, is that she was such and is such a consistent person. I, I vow and I believe to this day, and you could disagree with me, but it's my wife, so whatever. Um, I hold this opinion to this day. My wife is so good with people in drive-throughs. She, she is so good with customer service people on the phone. She, she is so kind to waiters at restaurants, and what gravitated me towards her is she's just this consistent human that she treats every person that she came across with respect and dignity. Me, on the other hand, I'm like, no ice in my matcha, send it back, okay? Cafe employees get it, okay? I'm sorry. In the life of a believer, I bring this up because we need to consider this. We need to consider the character we have and the life we're leading, and if we're being double-minded, as James would put it. See, when following Jesus, and what Paul is communicating, is you're going to be tempted to be hesitant and inconsistent, You're going to be tempted to be hesitant and inconsistent in your faith. And not just inconsistent like you fall short, but almost become two different people. These temptations, I believe, are going to manifest and look like three different things. It's going to come up in your past. You're going to be following Jesus, and your past is going to come up. The mistakes and the regrets is going to produce a sense of shame in your life, and you're going to feel like you haven't excelled or grown from those things. This was the case for Abraham. Every time he looked at Ishmael, he was probably reminded of his shame and his past of not trusting God. It's going to show up in people. There's going to be people who doubt and naysay and speak down on you. Think of Noah. When Noah's building this boat in Genesis, nobody believes in him. He's literally the only person building this boat. I don't think we understand this. It's kind of a picture for faith. Often in faith, we do community, we do life along one another, whatever that means. But often in faith, it feels very lonely and isolating. Because people aren't going to get the call and the anointing God has on your life. And the third is this it's going to look like pleasures pleasures are going to be presented to you and the past and pleasures often intertwine together and it's going to be really easy in a season and a moment where life is really hard there's a lot of pain there's a lot of suffering that you're going to want to self-medicate and numb your way through it instead god calls us to embrace the pain and trust in him i know for myself this was my life fall 2021 I don't know if any of you are aware of this part of my story, but Wesley actually isn't our only baby, Skylar and I. But we actually had another baby prior to Wesley and it is actually a pretty miraculous story. For three years of our marriage, we were told due to fertility issues, due to um, health complications, you guys probably can't have kids. And so (laughs) we're in this place where from the fiber of our being, We feel like God has promised us to be parents. Like like something that I I felt called to do and to be. And and this is something he has for me. And then then one fall in in 2021, Skylar gets a positive pregnancy test and it's just miraculous, it's insane. And we we just get so excited and scared and just, we're, we're just so ready, but like not ready. And we're like, what are we doing? And like, how are we gonna do this? So we start like shopping for baby clothes and we start like finding stuff, like making a Pinterest board for the room. And then one October, about nine weeks into it, there was a lot of bleeding. And then a lot of the bleeding was followed up with ultrasound with no heartbeat. And we were told by the nurse, I'm so sorry the baby has passed. So here I am with with this dream I believe God presented to me, that I believe God had for me. I'd been faithful. I had been trusting, I had, I had done all the right things, but it was still taken away from me. In that season, I have never been more acquainted with sorrow in my adult life. Big portion of my story is, is grief is, is a really big part of my story. I'm, I'm acquainted with death in my life, but this was a different kind of grief for me. All three of these things were presented to me. My past, through the anger I faced, and the temptation to return to who I was when my father passed away and just rely on anger and frustration. There's people who who had no idea what I was going through. There's people who didn't ask, who didn't seem to care, who actually spoke down on the situation. And and there was the temptation to numb myself through the pain through just different pleasure. Well, I I was tempted towards pornography. I, I was tempted towards excessive alcohol consumption. But in the middle of all of it, I was reminded of one verse. This is that verse, it's out of Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the pain I was enduring, in the season I was experiencing, I was tired. I was so tired. I was tempted to return to or go to places of previous promises of rest. but The Holy Spirit just gently tugged on me, gently reminded me, those things are empty. Rest in me those ways to self-medicate, those frustrations you face, they won't help you rest in me. I wonder tonight, how many of you are tired? I wonder tonight, how many of you are bogged down and burdened by living two separate lives because you're trying to satisfy and you're trying to seek something that was never meant to satisfy you in the first place? But through the lies of culture, through the lies we tell ourselves, through the pain you've experienced over a long-term point in life, you've accepted a lie. If that's you, if you sense tonight that you're just bogged down, that you're tired, that you're exhausted, I believe at the foot of the cross, at the reality of who Jesus is, we can be vulnerable before him. That despite my shortcomings that despite the pain i'm experiencing jesus is a man well acquainted with sorrow how often are we trying to get over or get around the wall of pain we're facing when jesus is asking us to go through it with him and for that to be the case we have to accept his way of life over our own we have to reject the old way of life that used to promise something we have to reject the old pattern that seem to fulfill us because it won't. And so tonight, I want to present to you. If you're tired and worn out, I, I want to ask that you just raise your hand so I can pray for you. There's some of you in this space. You're worn out and you're exhausted, and you've been following Jesus, but you're ready to give it. You're ready to give out. If that's you. Just raise your hand right now. I just want to know who I'm praying for. I see you. I want to pray for you. Anybody else? I just want to know who I'm praying for. Those of us in this space, who are just exhausted. Anybody, I see you. Anyone else? Yeah, I see you. If that's you, I want to pray for you right now. And maybe keep your hand raised, and if you're nearby these people, just place a hand on their shoulder. Just show them that they're not alone in what they're experiencing. Let's pray for these individuals. Father, thank you that you don't give up on us. Thank you that you're vulnerable with us. Thank you that you chase us down, Lord. Thank you that in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my sorrow, you saw me. You didn't look down upon me for the things I face. You didn't didn't look down upon me for the frustrations I was experiencing. You sat with me. And Lord, I pray over these individuals that if they're exhausted, that they're having a hard time, Lord, even just staying true to who you are, give them strength tonight. Lord, we pray that the people in this room if possible, may step into their corner. Lord, we pray over these individuals that you may walk with them through this. That it may not be something that they have to get over. It may not be something that they just need to strap up their boots and walk on from. But Lord, that they may walk through it with you and submit to you, Father. Pray this in your name, amen. I wanna pray for one more person in the room. And I've, I've been stepping out of faith. This is not my thing. I don't like really doing this, but I just sense the Holy Spirit is tugging on my heart. Somebody in the room tonight, you want, you've wanted nothing to do with Jesus, but through the pain you've experienced and through what you've endured, you're ready to accept him. Because through him, we find freedom from our shame. Through Him, by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we not only find the ability to resist the old chains that we used to be shackled by, but those chains begin to become broken off through long endurance and following Him. And so, if that's something you want for your life, if you're tired of the shame, you're tired of the old identity, you're tired of the pain identifying you, you've not accepted Jesus. I just want to ask that you raise your hand to accept Him right now. I want to lead you in a prayer. Just raise your hand. The lights are lowered. It's not embarrassing, it's not weird. You may think, my all my friends think I follow Jesus and this is kind of weird for me. D- don't think about that. Just, if you sense tonight that you have identified not as a follower of Jesus and you want to follow him, just raise your hand. If that's you, if you just don't feel like raising your hand, that's okay. I just wanna pray for you. And if this is you, just pray within your heart You don't have to pray out loud. God hears you. He sees you. He's with you. And this is the beginning of many conversations. Pray this prayer. Jesus, I accept you into my life. Forgive me for my past. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Allow me to walk in confidence in the future you have for me and allow me to trust you all the days of my life. In your name I pray, amen. Let's stand, and pr- uh, let's stand. We're gonna conclude in worship. If that was you, whether you're tired, you're exhausted from the pain you're facing, and you're tempted to return to an old way of life, whether you've accepted Jesus for the first time, we wanna celebrate you. But either of those two things, we wanna come alongside you. I don't know where many of you may have come from. You may attend a different church. You may have not have anything to do with church. You may have looked this up online and just shown up and you're like, I don't even know what I came to, but God's doing something, I guess. Whatever that is, we want to come alongside you as people. Faith isn't a solo sport. It isn't a rogue situation. It's something you do alongside other people. So if that's the case, we'll have our team members around the room to connect with you, pray for you, whatever you need. I, I just wanna encourage you, Let the spirit of pretentiousness and religion break down this room tonight. I don't know what you came in here with believing yourself to be or a version of yourself to be, but allow yourself to be vulnerable tonight before God and before others. The people in this room, they won't shame you. They won't think you're weird for crying. They won't think you're weird for wanting prayer. There's something beautiful and freeing in those actions. So if you need those things, we're available for you. Let's worship.